The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Gia Kokotakis, intern at Lawfare. On June 8th, 2023, former President Donald Trump was charged in the Southern District of Florida for his alleged improper removal of classified documents from the White House to Mar-a-Lago. The case in Florida, however, is not the first time the former president has allegedly mishandled classified information. For today's archive episode, I picked an episode from May 15th, 2017, in which Benjamin Wittes and Susan Hennessy sat down with former Office of the Director of National Intelligence General Counsel, Robert Litt, to discuss Trump's disclosure of highly classified material to the Russian ambassador and foreign minister, compromising a highly sensitive counterterrorism program run by an allied intelligence service. They discussed how bad the disclosure may have been at the time, what the remedies were for it, and more. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, May 15th, Special Emergency Edition. The Washington Post is reporting this evening, as you probably already know, that uh, Donald Trump uh, committed an egregious act of disclosure of highly sensitive uh, intelligence information in a meeting with, you guessed it, Sergei Kislyak, ambassador of Russia and Sergei Lavrov, the foreign minister of Russia, last week. Uh, it's a shocking story, and uh, we decided to put together an uh, emergency podcast on it. I'm here with Susan Hennessy, Lawfare's managing editor, and we have on the line uh, one of my oldest uh, intelligence friends in Washington, Bob Litt, who unfortunately is no longer the general counsel to the DNI. The intelligence community misses him. Bob is many things. Among other things, he is the subject of my very first Washington Post editorial. Uh, and um, and he is uh, uh, somebody who knows an enormous amount about uh, the way the intelligence community works and when things go terribly, terribly wrong, what that looks like. Uh, so we're lucky to have him. Bob, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Ben. 
All right, let's start with your initial impressions of this story. Uh, how bad is it? How clear is it what happened? And uh, what, what points do you think are salient as we, as we start processing this? Well, um, if the Post story is accurate, it's an extremely, extremely serious problem. I emphasize if the Post story is accurate because it's based, um, as most of these stories are, on anonymous sources, but it seems highly specific uh, and uh, done by reputable reporters. It's also, uh, in the few hours since the Post has published its stories, several other uh, news outlets have uh, appear to have independently confirmed the information. Um, the The White House has uh, issued denials, but the denials are fairly carefully worded. Um, what the Post story says is that in meetings with uh, Kisilyak and Lavrov, in the meeting uh, with Kisilyak and Lavrov, um, Trump talked about some of the intelligence information that we have about ISIS. And he revealed specific information that we had obtained from a third country uh, under circumstances where we promised that country that we would not disclose it and indeed where that information was highly compartmented even within the executive branch. Um, but that disclosing this information could reveal um, either the identity of the nation that uh, disclosed the information to us or more seriously could lead the Russians to be able to identify where that third country is getting its information from and perhaps uh, compromise that source of intelligence. Um, the White House's denials have not really addressed the issue because they've said that the president did not discuss or disclose intelligence sources and methods and as the Post noted in their article, that's not what they're saying he did. What they're saying he did was disclose information that could compromise sources and methods and that was essentially specifically promised to the third country that we would keep secret. Um, so this is something that has uh, extraordinarily serious ramifications, both for our relationship with this country and frankly for the willingness of other countries to cooperate with us uh, on intelligence matters. Um, uh, and I guess that's those are sort of my my overviews of of the matter. Let's talk about your caveat if the story is correct. Uh, in your experience, you served in in as general counsel to the DNI for a lot of years um, during the Snowden revelations, uh, during you know a lot of major stories that came out about uh, intelligence disclosures. Uh, how often, in your experience, did a was a um, story, uh, you know, that's released by a reputable news organization uh, by reputable reporters and then immediately confirmed by other news sources? How often, in your experience, does that turn out to be a nothing burger in which the fundamental claim of the story turns out to be false? It happens. Um, it happened with one of the very early stories about Snowden. It happened more recently in some uh, some other stories that have come out about surveillance activities. But generally speaking, when there are errors in the stories, it's inferences and conclusions that the reporters have drawn from facts uh, 
rather than reporting the facts themselves. It's, there are instances where, where the facts have been wrong as well, and so one does have to be somewhat cautious about it. But as I said, this story appears specific enough uh, and, and the reporters um, thorough enough that I'm inclined to believe it is accurate. So what do you think that it says that this story came out so quickly after the meeting, um, right? So this is obviously a highly sensitive information. Um, uh, clearly a lot of detail being discussed with the reporters. Um, what should we make of, of sort of the relationship between the relevant parties? Well, the Post article says that the White House was sufficiently concerned about this that uh, General McMaster called the directors of the CIA and the NSA, which were identified as the agencies most concerned, to advise them of this. Um, I think the logical conclusion is that someone at one of those agencies um, called up the Washington Post and passed this information to them. Um, and that, to me, is, is very troubling, not only because um, of the legal implications, but because it suggests that there is really very little trust between the president and the intelligence community. Uh, and uh, having spent seven and a half years uh, in the intelligence community, uh, that trust is vital to the ability to protect the nation. Um, I think what you have is an environment where the president uh, believes the intelligence community is out to get him, that it's part of the deep state that, is, uh, is, that has never recognized his legitimacy. And I think the intelligence community believes that the president disrespects and distrusts them. Uh, and that's a, that is a, a very dangerous thing for our national security. So one of the things that um, you know we put, we put up a, a pretty quick reaction lawfare post tonight, and one of the, uh, sort of the issues that we uh, thought could be dispensed with quickly is is the question of whether or not uh, Donald Trump committed a crime. Um, you know, the president has really broad constitutional authority in this area. He can declassify things. He can decide to disclose classified information essentially to the people you know he wants to. Um, so, uh, in your experience, um, you know, is it ordinary for either a president or really high-level officials to, uh, on on the spur of the moment or sort of based on the, the way a, a conversation is going, decide to reveal classified information? Um, or is that sort of a, a, a real aberration, right? Is this, uh, is this something we should really read into a feature of some of the impulsivity uh, we've witnessed uh, in, in over the past four months? Um, or is this the kind of thing that actually, you know, presidents and high level officials do all the time uh, as they're engaging with, with foreign officials and as they're deciding, you know, hey, they, they need to know this information? So a couple of, of things. Um, I think that it's unlikely that this was a conscious decision to disclose this information. Um, for one thing, uh, the, the circumstances as reported suggested that it was uh, simply a bit of braggadocio um, a, along the lines of, uh, we've got the, the most beautiful chocolate cake you've ever seen. Um, and I also think that uh, if, if had there been any conscious thought given to this, um, uh, the president would have realized that this is not information that he should be disclosing in this context. Um, having said that, 
Um, it does happen that the president or other uh, high-level officials do from time to time disclose classified information, either in a public setting or to uh, foreign, uh, f foreign counterparts. Generally speaking, that's done after an interagency process where the equity holders have a right to weigh in and say, no, you, you can't disclose this information uh, because of the, of, the, uh, of the consequences that would flow from that. Um, I think one of, the, one of the concerns, the broader concerns that this reflects is a sort of lack of appropriate process in the administration, perhaps coming from a mistrust of the agencies, but that if, if this is the sort of thing that if, it, if, if the president gets talking points for a meeting with, with the Russians and this shows up in the talking points um, the, and the talking points are circulated for clearance, the intelligence agencies are going to scream bloody murder and get that out of the talking points. Um, that didn't happen here because, from all accounts, the president was just freelancing. But it really emphasizes the importance of process in these matters. So uh, walk, walk us through. So we, we explained this in the post that we did tonight, but I, I think it's worth worth breaking down what a disclosure like this is if different people do it. So if a low-level or mid-level or even senior-level official accidentally does this and in the course of a conversation with a, a foreign uh, adversary actor discloses something highly sensitive, uh, that's a crime, right? Yes, uh, what is it if the president does it? Is it is it an act of state? Is it an impeachable offense? It's not a crime, right? Uh, is it a you know how how are we supposed to think about assuming assuming that the answer isn't that the story is entirely false and that there was some significant, presumably inadvertent. Uh, impulsive re revelation of something very sensitive. Uh, how do we think about what, how should we think about what it is when the president, you know, turns over such material in the Oval Office to a foreign adversary? What's the phrase? It's, it's worse than a crime. It's a blunder. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it's pretty clearly not a crime because the crime is the disclosure of classified information without authorization. And the president owns the classification system and has the right to declassify information. Uh, and so he is authorized to declassify it and therefore it's not a crime. Um, but um, for the reasons I articulated earlier, it, it was a, a terrible blunder that may have significant long-term consequences for our relationship with, uh, with this particular country. It may uh, compromise a really important intelligence source. It may lead other countries to uh, be less willing to share significant intelligence information with us. Um, uh, so it may uh, have very, very damaging impact on our national security. This is something that's just going to play out over time. 
So sort of thinking about that, um, the impact of the relationship with uh, with foreign governments. So uh, Trump has a little bit of a history in, in of getting in trouble here, um, uh, right? His sort of his accusations against uh, GCHQ were not particularly well received uh, uh, in that country. Um, there's even sort of there were reports kind of in the transition period, um, uh, specifically uh, sort of in Israeli media um, about foreign governments sort of expressing concern about this precise issue of sort of protection of classified information. Um, and then there's clearly much broader atmospheric concerns about uh, the preservation of our existing allied relationships and our existing intelligence sharing relationships. Um, sort of what is your assessment of where we were yesterday, um, uh, right? Are we already, is this sort of uh, another straw on top of uh, uh, the camel's back here? Or is this, um, uh, is should we really view this as potentially a, a far more serious potential breaking point or more consequential than, than you know, the anxieties we've already heard expressed? I think this is potentially far more serious. I, and in particular, if this in fact ends up compromising the particular source in question and the third country loses this source of information, um, that's more than sort of wild accusations against GCHQ. That's more than uh, free-floating anxiety about a loose cannon in the White House. Um, that is something that says, if you share important intelligence information with the United States, you may lose your sources. Um, and that will, I believe, lead to countries not sharing information with us. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Okay, so I want to connect this to two other stories that are going on concurrently that are themselves uh, related to, I suppose, each other, but, but, but in a sort of inchoate and non-obvious sense. Uh, one is, how does this relate to the Trump-Russia connection story? It's not an accident, I suppose, that this happened in a meeting with uh, the two Sergeys. Okay, the second is uh, the firing of Jim Comey, uh, which, you know, I'm interested in your thoughts on to what extent we should consider this a uh, unrelated overlapping matter with either or both of these, to what extent we should consider it intricately related, uh, either in in 
cause or in likely effect? I, I don't know about the relationship this has to the Russia story, and that's partly because I don't think we know enough uh, in terms of public knowledge about whether there is any fire behind the smoke in the Russian story. Um, there certainly have been other stories that suggest the president is careless about sort of routine precautions for national security information. The story about having sensitive discussions in the middle of, of uh, dinner parties at Mar-a-Lago. Um, the fact that, for example, uh, there was a, a highly sensitive briefing for all senators that took place in an unsecure room at the White House. Um, and so it's entirely possible that this is simply part of a pattern of the president not understanding the sensitivities that are implicated here or not caring about the sensitivities that, that are implicated here. Um, as for, and, and so that sort of spills over onto the relationship to Comey. Um, I guess uh, I'm always willing to assume the best until the worst is proven. Um, and a corollary to that is um, if you're faced with a choice between incompetence and venality, um, the likely answer is almost always going to be incompetence. I don't know if that should be a source of comfort or uh, I, I don't know what the worst explanation is uh, in this particular case. So, oh, I think I think clearly the worst in, in answer here would be if there's a corrupt relationship between the president and the, and the Russian government. I think that that is far worse than simply a president who doesn't understand these things, but who was at least theoretically educable. But can I ask sort of, I wonder how that plays out, especially as the, um, in terms of the foreign intelligence sharing piece, right? So, um, uh, you know, my perception is that allies share in order to have the reciprocal, reciprocal relationship. Um, so I, I almost wonder if, if, at least on the intelligence sharing metric, if the concern is cabined to sharing information with the Russians, um, you could, you could uh, strategically control what information uh, you were willing to share. If it's just a question of carelessness, that seems to infect far broader sort of issues or, or far, bro far broader categories of information. Um, I don't, do you think there's anything to that or am I uh, overly reaching? Um, no, I mean, I th that's obviously a concern. But the problem is, um, given the web of relationships that, that the Russians have with the Syrians and the Iranians and, and others, um, there's going to be an awful lot that's going to fall in the category of you'd want to hold it back from the Russians. Okay, so now uh, let's let's turn back the clock and play a, a, a counterfactual, uh, which is that you are general counsel to the DNI, and this is a meeting between that never, as far as I know, an Oval Office meeting that didn't take place between Barack Obama and the two Sergeys. And this happens. Uh, what does the process look like inside the government when something like this happens? The Post reported that the that Trump aides notified uh, the relevant agencies. What does the government do in a situation like this? Well, um, I mean, you don't need I, a leak investigation because you know where it came from. Right. I mean, there are there are basically two tracks that would go uh, for what you might f try to call um, 
remediation and mitigation. Um, from the remediation point of view, somebody, and presumably in this case it would be the DNI and or the director of the CIA and or the director of the NSA, would have to sit down ideally with the president, but perhaps only with his chief of staff would be all you could get into, and explain the problem here uh, and say, you know, this can't happen again. Um, from a mitigation point of view, presumably the heads of the intelligence agencies who have the relationship with the country in question would be calling up and essentially falling on their sword and begging them to uh, continue the cooperation. So not to adopt the um, Michael Flynn, if I had done this, I would be in jail argument. Um, but imagine for a second it is uh, almost anyone other than the president who shares this information. Um, what kind of consequences would they be looking at? What, what sorts of response would the executive branch be having to, to this kind of disclosure if it was, say, uh, just a different senior official and then happened not to be the president or vice president. The reality is that if it's a senior a cabinet level official, um, probably what happens is the person gets scolded uh, and nothing more. If it's simply an inadvertent, um, oh my God, I said something I shouldn't have said, as opposed to sort of an intentional effort to compromise information. Or if, for example, somebody had said, I want to be able to say this, had been told, no, you can't say it, and gone ahead and said it anyway. If it's just blurting something out and it's a high-level official, the reality of, of Washington politics is that person is not likely to be prosecuted or fired. Um, a lower-level official is at much greater risk. And a low-level official, and, and you attribute the difference to, I mean, if Glenn Greenwald were on this call, he would say the difference is, you know, that people like you protect high-level officials and uh, people like Susan and me uh, apologize for it in public. Uh, what's, what in your judgment explains the difference, between the differential treatment between the higher-level and the lower-level official uh, in, in that situation? Power. So you basically agree with Glenn? No. Um, <laughs> it's, not, it's, not that, it's not that people like me protect him and it's not that, that, that people like you go easy on them. It's that a person who is in the position of Secretary of Defense or Attorney General um, is considerably more important to the President of the United States uh, than somebody who is a, uh, a low-level analyst. So what does that mean when the person responsible is the president? Does that mean that Trump basically gets away with this unless Congress is outraged? Well, I'm not sure what the alternative to him getting away with it is. What, what are you suggesting? What else could be done? I don't know. I mean, I've, I've never really seen a situation before in which there is something that we all think is an egregious security breach and it's done at the presidential level. I've seen examples of it at the senatorial level and at the cabinet level and at the CIA director level.
but I'm not sure I've ever seen an example of it like this. So I'm just trying to imagine how it plays out. Actually, this is related to a, a different question I have that I think touches on the same th the same thing, or, or maybe touches on the same thing, and that's. Uh, we're in order to understand sort of the actual consequences here. Um, uh, that's going to have to sort of assume a counterfactual, right? So um, uh, something will happen in in the region uh, at issue, um, and somebody will say, you know. But for the compromise to this uh, to this source and method, this this bad thing wouldn't have happened. Um, but we'll ne we'll never we'll never be able to tell that because you never know what information you di you didn't get. Tell me something, Bob. When when uh, you know it is not in the post story what country this is, though I think we can make some inferences about it based on things that are in the post story. So, for example, the post story says it's a country that. Uh, the mere fact of the relationship is itself classified, which suggests that it's not one of the Five Eyes countries and not one of the countries that, you know, the, the many European countries where we have sort of open intelligence sharing, uh, at least the fact of open intelligence sharing understanding. It's a country that has a, a major uh, capability right in the Middle East and there aren't that many such countries that you could expect would have uh, that. And they tend to cooperate, among other things, with each other. And so I'm interested just in your gut level assessment of, so what, what does this do, you know, if you have four or five intelligence agencies in the region that cooperate with each other and cooperate with us and all of a sudden the president of the United States has been uh, a, a, a big security bad actor. Uh, what's the realistic fallout from that? And when, and, 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 you know, how bad do you think it's likely to be? It's very hard to tell. It's, there are going to be some very, very hard conversations um, between uh, Mike Pompeo and Mike Rogers uh, on the one hand uh, and their counterparts. Um, there may be some uh, very uh, sub rosa trips to the region to try to plead things personally. Um, it, is, it is potentially extremely damaging. Susan, I think, correctly noted that these countries uh, will have to assess their own interest in keeping open a relationship with us that benefits them as well, but at a minimum, it would not surprise me if they stop sharing some of their very most sensitive stuff. Again, it, it may be that uh, we're able to repair the damage because they believe that continued cooperation with us is uh, is important. But it's going. There are going to be some very very hard conversations that are going to take place. I mean, what do you think the U.S. reaction would have been if if a really important intelligence partner, right? So Netanyahu discloses um, a highly sensitive information that he's received from the United States. Um, you know that that's not a relationship necessarily that the United States can, without thought, just say, "Well, forget it. We're not going to do business with you anymore." Um, <laughs> What do you think sort of the, the process or, or the thinking would be like in the United States if we were faced with this sort of issue coming from, from one of our intelligence allies? 
So I can say that in the course of my time as general counsel, without getting into specifics, there were a number of instances where we had to face circumstances like that, not involving the leader of a nation, but involving information that we shared with a friendly government that then made its way into the public domain. And we had some of those very hard conversations. Um, we, uh, in some instances, uh, insisted on changes in, in process. Um, but ultimately, in those cases, um, we determined that the, uh, the sharing relationship should continue. So when you look at this, uh, what are the questions that you have if you were uh, the congressional intelligence committees, uh, or at least the functional one of the two, uh, that had uh, relevant jurisdiction here? Uh, what are the questions that you would be demanding to know the answers to right now? Well, I think one of the interesting things is that in all the reporting on the uh, Lavrov-Kisilyak meeting that I have seen, I have not seen any identification of who was in the room besides the president for the uh, representing the United States. And were I um, the, uh, I think McMaster today said that he was there. I'm not sure of that. Yeah, he said that he was there and it didn't happen, but, but he would. The, but it, he then qualified that by saying, you know, he didn't disclose uh, sources or methods. Correct. But I would, I would, um, uh, were I the intelligence committee, I would want to have um, somebody who was in that room up there and, and just say, okay, tell me exactly what went on in the conversation. How likely do you think it is that the White House alerted the intelligence ally here? Right, so, so the person who originated the information. And we heard Tom Bossert picked up the phone and, and called NSA, called CIA. Um, what are the odds that they, that they also reached out? Do you, do you predict that would have been part of their immediate initial response? Or is it possible that uh, that intelligence ally is still wondering right now whether or not it's their information that's been compromised? Um, I, I don't know whether they reached out directly. I think the presumably the, the reason why McMaster called NSA and CIA was so that they could reach out. Um, and I suspect that the country in question, know, f as soon as they read this story, knows that it's their information and knows the information that it is. Well, it would presumably be much worse from the country's perspective if they learned about it from the Washington Post, right? Right. And one hopes that uh, that that didn't happen, that that, as I said, that the reason McMaster called was so that that notification could be given. That, again, would be the the ordinary course of events. Um, you, you at a minimum, you'd have the intelligence intelligence relationship, um, whether the, uh, the the president or the national security advisor has built, built a relationship with the leadership of the country in question and whether, in fact, the leadership of the country in question is aware of the relationship um, would dictate whether there were other calls made. So one more question, Bob, and then I'll let you go. As you look at this, as you look at the Comey firing, as you look at the last three and a half months, how alarmed are you? How alarmed should we be? I, as I said earlier, I am extremely alarmed about the breakdown in relationship between the White House and the intelligence community. And I think this is, is showing across the board. I think you see it in the, the fact that the, 
president decided to cancel his visit to the FBI after firing Comey, and I think he did that because he knew what kind of a reception he'd get there. I think you see that in the leaks coming out uh, that are hostile to the president. I think that this is a very, very dangerous thing for our national security. Other people can talk about sort of the institutional dangers from having an, an, an erratic president uh, and, a, uh, and a national security apparatus that is not functioning as it should function. But my biggest concern is that if, if the president doesn't trust his intelligence agencies, he's not going to get the information that he needs. And if, and if the intelligence agencies don't trust the president, they're not going to be, they're going to, they're not going to be giving him information that he needs. The, the prospect of the, the intelligence agencies withholding information from the president or the president not believing what they're telling him is, is very frightening to me. Bob Litt, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Ben. You've been listening to a special edition of the Lawfare Podcast. We need your help promoting the Lawfare Podcast. A lot of people are going to listen to this one who haven't heard the podcast before. So this is your chance. Subscribe to the Lawfare Podcast. Get it every week. We, we do stuff like this all the time, and you should, you should subscribe. Uh, you should also rate the Lawfare Podcast. You know, we don't advertise we don't buy uh, prom- any kind of promotion. Stamps.com doesn't support the Lawfare podcast. We only People only circulate us because you bother to go to iTunes or whatever podcast distribution service you use and click that rating and leave comments about the Lawfare podcast so others learn about it too. Thanks for listening.